0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Am I on? There we go. Good morning, Northway family. Good to see you. So grateful uh, to be with you here this Sunday. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. And uh, you know, by the way, if you were to see a man roaming around here with a camera taking pictures, that's not paparazzi, that's not Sports Illustrated trying to capture Matt Younger. That is not what's going on there. Uh, that is Paul Galanko, a good friend of ours who's snapping some pics for our new website that's going to be launched this summer. And long overdue, but a new website is coming. It's going to be clear, easy communication, and uh, hopefully serve our church and our community well. So that's coming, but that's not why we're here now. We are continuing in our study in the book of Romans, and for the past several months in particular, we have been walking through some of the most theologically dense chapters of your entire bible and some have even said to me shay my my head has been hurting in this, this latter portion of the, portion of this series and i go yeah and in some ways that's a good thing because until your head hurts your heart's not going to heal there's got to be a sense in which we get under the weightiness of a bigger vision of who god is and what god is doing in the world to save and redeem a people of his own choosing And the bigger God gets, the more glorious he becomes to us. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Romans. And what Paul's been doing is putting on display the power of God to save a fallen and sinful people for himself. And to a people who have no righteousness of their own, the good news in Romans is that God has found a way to provide us his righteousness for us, through the perfect work, person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross through his death and his resurrection, which is to be received by faith and then seals and secures us forever. Like this is the good news. And particularly though, uh, in Romans 9 through 11, these three chapters here, Paul's been uh, emphasizing exactly how God's plan of salvation was actually drawn up. And He begins to unpack for us the fact that God has been sovereignly choosing um, an undeserving people made up of both Jews and Gentiles, whom he has found a way through Jesus Christ to bring together as one, to where now there is no partiality, there is no superiority in Jesus Christ through the shed blood of Jesus and our faith in him, he takes both Jew and Gentile, these former hostile counterparts here, and brings them together as one. I don't know about you, in today's day and age where there is so much division, so much hatred right now, that is good news. The only unifying thing in the world to bring two hostile parties together like this in an undeniable unified identity is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and trusting in his work and his work alone. And by God's sovereignly choose them, what we've seen in 9 through 11 is God made some promises. In chapter 9, we saw that God made some promises to Israel in their past. He started by out of all that broken humanity, he chose one person that he pulled out and said, nothing but by my sheer mercy and grace alone, I'm going to use you. As an old man who had no kids, Abraham, I'm going to use you. And through, I'm going to multiply your descendants, and through them, I'm going to bless the nations through one particular seed of yours that's going to come, who will be the Messiah, who will be the Redeemer. And God chooses Abraham, and out of Abraham comes what are known as the the Jewish people, the Israelites, and God makes promises to them concerning the Savior. And yet, what we saw in chapter 10 is that Israel, in the days after, began rejecting that Messiah. Culminating all the way up to Jesus and his crucifixion, and they're handing him over to be killed. And there is this mass rejection that has happened. But what Paul shows us in chapter 11 is that their rejection of Jesus Christ has actually led to our acceptance in Christ as Gentiles, that God is working this plan out. And this is where we find ourselves today, by the way. 2,000 years later, masses of Gentiles, just look around this room, non-Jews mostly, masses of Gentiles from nations all across the earth turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. While it appears that masses of Jews, of Israelites, are turning away from Jesus Christ in rejection of Jesus Christ, And so the question is, is that leaves us wondering, so is this God's plan? Is this the end game of this plan? Is that they're done, the original people that God made promises to, they're done, and so now God's just saving a bunch of uh, Gentiles like us, and then we're just waiting on Jesus' return, and that's the end game. Is there nothing more biblically to be expected about how God is going to fulfill some of his original promises and redeem these people of his own choosing from both Jew and Gentile? I wanna show you in verses 25 to 32 of Romans 11, God's plan for the ages, including not only our future and our salvation, but the future of the Jewish people as well and God's promise of salvation. He's gonna tell us in verse 25, lest you and I as Gentiles think that we are the end all be all in God's curriculum for salvation, that we have not rightly understood his plan, that there is still more to come. There is still more of God's original ancient people who are going to be saved. You see this starting in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. You think that you know it all, I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant in this concerning the mystery, brothers. For a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul says there's a master plan going on here. There is a master plan that God has um, that God has designed in order to bring about the salvation of this new humanity that God is trying to save. And he says, this master plan is a mystery to us. That's a big word that Paul uses in multiple of his letters to describe God's plan of salvation, a mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery in its raw definition is something that is, um, it's a mystery to us, something that was previously hidden, a truth, that has always existed, but was previously hidden and now has been revealed to us. It's the reason why we love mystery movies or mystery novels. We love the suspense of knowing there's a truth about what happened, but we just don't know what it is. And we're, we keep reading and we keep waiting because we know that in time, this mystery is going to be unveiled and we'll see who done it. And so in this context, what is the mystery that Paul is referring to here? It is, in short, it is God's plan of both who and how he is going to redeem and save. A a plan that was present in the Old Testament, but it was veiled. And now in the New Testament, it has actually been revealed to us about what God is doing. So that now we can go back to the Old Testament, reread some of those old passages, and go, oh, that's what he meant there. And it's a mystery, it's it's shrouded in many ways. And Paul even goes further in his letter to the church at Ephesus, in the letter of Ephesians, and he defines specifically what this mystery is. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, For this reason I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Meaning, this this is my mission in life is to, to reach Gentiles. Yes, Jews, but primarily Gentiles. That's what God set Paul aside for. Assuming that you've heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. I didn't know what it was before, but I see it now. God's made this known, this mystery here, as I've written about briefly. And when you read this letter, you can perceive now my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery, Paul says, and here he defines it, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You go, wait a minute, I thought God's plan was just to redeem the Jews through Jesus Christ, right? And Paul goes, no, there's a greater mystery it wasn't just the Jews, but it was actually to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles alongside with the Jews. These two being made into one, members of the same body. And how is this done? As partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus. God is doing this. In other words, God's master plan for the ages was to save a distinct people from their sins through the work of Jesus Christ that would start with Israel and then knowing that Israel would temporarily reject Jesus and mass droves, God would then turn to the Gentiles and graft them in to the promises that he made and he would save Gentiles from all nations and then together with Jews, make them one in the body of Christ. And that plan of saving Gentiles in this season would continue, Paul says, for an undisclosed amount of time until there is a final predetermined number that God has chosen of Gentiles whom he's going to save until that is complete. Think about that. God has in his infinite mind, in his ark and master plan of redemption, in this mystery of making the two one in Christ, as he turns to the Gentiles amidst Jewish rejection, he's got a number in his mind of a complete number throughout history of who and how many Gentiles he's going to save, of which you and I are part of that number now. So we have put our faith in Jesus. And he's gonna continue to keep saving Gentiles until that number is complete. And when that number is complete, What then about the Jews? He says in verse 26, when that happens, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, in this way, all Israel will then be saved. All Israel will be saved. Paul says Israel's hardening, meaning their rejection of Jesus, it's not full and it's not final. It's only partial as God goes and saves a bunch of Gentiles, but there is a day coming when all of Israel will be saved. Now here lies the theological debate. What does all mean in this text? All Israel will be saved. Two major interpretations. One is a plain reading that all ethnic Israel, anybody who is a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, in the end of days will be saved all of them that is one major interpretation that i happen to disagree with because i believe the scriptures disagrees with that as we'll see in a moment not only is that impossible but it was also never even predicted so there's a second interpretation though and that is the all that is mentioned here is not a promise to every ethnic jew just because of their physical genealogical lineage Just because you're born as a Jew does not entitle you to salvation. That that promise for all Israel is referred to the true Israel within ethnic Israel that God has redeemed as a remnant to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that latter belief there that I would hold to is because Paul has already told us that's the case. Back in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he said these words, It is not as though the word of God has failed. When you see ethnic Israel in mass droves rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, it's not that God's word has failed. Why? Because he says, For not all who are descended from Israel do they belong to Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. There's an Israel within the Israel that God has chosen to save. Meaning when God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and then ratified in Genesis 15, that he would save through his, he would multiply his descendants and bless the nations through the Messiah and he would save his people. That wasn't a promise to just ethnic Israel who's merely physical descendants who can trace their genealogical tree back to Abraham through the flesh. God is not saving a people by their own flesh. It was a promise to those descendants of his who would put their faith in the same promise that their forefather Abraham put his faith in. Genesis 15 says God made a promise about how he would save and how he would bless the nations through the Messiah, the seed that would come in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And therefore, anybody who is a son of Abraham or a son of God not one who is a physical descendant alone. It's one who follows in the faith of their forefather Abraham, not the flesh of their forefather Abraham. So Paul tells us here, even though it appears all of ethnic Israel, at least the majority, appear to be rejecting Jesus right now as the Messiah, this has not thwarted God's plan for those whom he promised to save. Paul says, right now, God is gathering a predetermined number of Gentiles from across the nations. And when the fullness of those Gentiles comes in, then the partial hardening of Israel will end. And you will see a harvest of Jews come to faith in Jesus. And in that day, God's plan will be complete and all Israel will be saved. So as a Gentile, he says, don't get cocky. Don't start thinking you're the end-all, be-all. Don't start thinking right now because LeBron got benched uh, for part of the game and you got to come play for a little bit that God's done over here. LeBron coming back in or the true goat, Michael Jordan, coming back in right there. Don't get cocky. Stay humble because God's plan is not finished. Now, I wanna pause there for just a second because I think it's important we need to understand a few things, both of implications of ethnic Israel versus spiritual Israel And I think it's important that we understand even how it makes the context of today's conflicts, just as we've seen with Israel and Hamas or Israel and Palestine, um, how these come to bear in our terms today and how we need to consider towards those things. First of all, concerning ethnic Israel, I think it goes without saying, without in order for a future in-gathering, some future day when all of Israel will be saved, the true Israel who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, in order for a mass amount of Jews to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation, that assumes that at least in some aspect, there is an ethnic Israel that is preserved along the way in order for God to redeem out of ethnic Israel those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we have seen that to be true all throughout modern history and even ancient history. Like all, think about the incredible odds of how Israel as an ethnic people is still around today. It has been argued that no ethnic group, no nation has been persecuted by more nations in the face of this earth throughout the history of this earth than the Jewish people. We can start with the Egyptian captivity and bondage. We can then move to uh, the Assyrians. We can move to the Babylonians and their persecution of Israel. We can look at Greece. We can look at the Romans who came in and enslaved Israel. We can look at the German Holocaust in modern times. We can go to the Arab Spring. We can look at the tensions that are going on today. At every corner, this is a people who have been persecuted. It has been said that more that the Jewish blood has been shed on nearly every continent on the face of this earth throughout human history, and yet, they're still around. Even when you go to Israel today, as I talk to many of my Jewish friends when I go over there, there is a common saying that's used in Israel today. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek humor for many Jews. They would go, if indeed we are a chosen people, would that God have chosen somebody else for all that we've been through? Because there's a reality present there and yet Israel still remains as a people. One scholar noted, Nicholas Berdyev, noticed Jewish survival cannot be explained by natural forces. The continued existence of the Jewish people has to be proof of God's faithfulness to his promise, that he has a plan that is somehow being worked out here. Now, understand something here theologically. I think this is important to Translate into our modern day today. This may be controversial, but I will say this. I think biblically speaking, I don't see anywhere where God owes Israel as a nation state, a secular nation state, anything in Scripture. What's going on, especially right now, what we're seeing right now, what's really been going on for many, many millennia even, but currently right now between the Palestinians and and the Jews um, is significant, no doubt. Just from a sociological, historical, political point of view, with no interpretation here, just fact, what the Palestinians right now are arguing for in Israel is they're going, listen, uh, prior to 1917, we're starting there, the Palestinians controlled about 96% of Israel, of all the land that is seen as Israel today, about 96%. And then it wasn't until 1948 and then through the war in 1967 that that land was taken away from the Palestinians and now delegated to portions of the West Bank and to Gaza. And so you have Palestinians as a people group going, wait a minute, at one point we had all this and it's all been stripped away and then they keep trying to take more away from us. And so we're just trying to establish ourselves as our own nation state right here in this land. On the Israel side of it, Israel's going, great, But prior to that, we owned all that land. And in fact, there was more that we're entitled to. In Genesis 15, God promised land, seed, and blessing. And that land wasn't just this little strip we're in right now. That land, if you read Genesis 15, was from the River Nile in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River in Iraq, heading up just to the southern part of Turkey down to the Arabian Peninsula. It's a huge swath of land that God said, I'm gonna give to you, And Israel's going right now, currently as it stands, we own about 10% of that land. And you're trying to give us to give up even more of that 10%. And so you have these two entities colliding and it has been this way since Jacob and Esau. This has been the tension of old, of this enmity between these. But I want you to see, biblically speaking, a secular, disbelieving, Jesus-rejecting, nation-state has no claim on the land. That land was promised to the true elect of Israel, those who would follow in the footsteps of Abraham, who would believe upon the Messiah. That land would be given to him. And I do believe, as Isaiah prophesied, there is still a day coming when that land promise will be fulfilled in the kingdom when Christ establishes it in its fullness. But in the meantime, I certainly would say we should pray for a peaceful agreement between Israel and Palestine, not based on um, entitlement to divine rights, but really on civil principles of justice and mercy and shared peace. But here's the point, because God has promised to save and to bless a true remnant of Israel it is assumed that God will continue to protect and preserve at least some form of an ethnic national Israel by which he will continue to save his elect out of. And now the question becomes, so how and when will God bring about this final act where all Israel will be saved when it seems like right now all of Israel is rejecting the Messiah? Well, we get a glimpse of that in verse 26 and 27, when Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, as well as Isaiah 27, and he says these words, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so it's interesting right now, the first question that's spoken to is, how is Israel going to be saved? What is the means by which Israel will be saved? As Isaiah prophesied, salvation can only come through one way, through a deliverer. A deliverer whom we know is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's chosen one, his anointed one for Israel that came from Zion. Now, Zion, by the way, Zion is just a term of endearment that God gave to his beloved city, Jerusalem. Uh, you and I, you have a significant other. Your, your term might be your boo or your bay, whatever you're going to go at. God's, God's boo is Zion, all right? That's, his, that's his, uh, his love for this city, love for these people. And it was foretold that it was there in Zion, it was there in Jerusalem, that the deliverer would come and he would go to the cross as Isaiah, Isaiah 53 prophesied. He would shed his blood for his people and atone for their sins. That is the only way in which not only a Jew, but any human being on this earth can be saved, is through the blood-bought redemption of Jesus Christ on that cross in Jerusalem, by putting our trust in him and his work for our salvation. That is the only way they'll be saved. So make no mistake, you are not saved by your, your ethnicity, You are not saved by your religious works. You are not saved by your physical genealogy. That will not save you. Only the blood of the deliverer who made a new covenant for us on that cross can save us. The next question, though, is is when? When will this take place? Because we don't see it happen a whole lot right now, although it is. We see Jews, and we've talked about this in previous messages, there are many Jews who are being saved today. We just don't see it in mass drove like we see with Gentiles. So when, when will this happen? And when will this partial hardening come to an end? Well, we, we see some of that also contained in that same verse in Isaiah, that same passage in Isaiah. Paul quotes Isaiah 59, but what's interesting, and most scholars have noted, Paul changes, seems to change a word in Isaiah 59 as it's quoted into this context as Paul is interpreting it within the mystery of God's salvific plan. The original Isaiah 59, if you return to, to your Old Testament right now and read Isaiah 59, it will say this phrase the deliverer will come to Zion. But when Paul quotes it in Romans 11, he specifically says the deliverer will come from Zion. Now, many people think this. Not only was Zion the term of endearment used by God for the earthly Jerusalem, we see in many other biblical texts, Zion is also the term of endearment used for the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, what we would call heaven that is used there. And many believe that what Paul is doing here is reading into the mystery that has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit and penning these words that there is a day coming when the Messiah will come from the heavenly Jerusalem. He will return, and when he does that, he will finish what he started in redeeming his people. And so many people fear that, feel here that Paul is unveiling that fact of this future day when Israel will turn unto the Lord in repentance in mass droves just prior to the return of the Messiah in his second coming. Now, we also know this to be true just from biblical prophecy. So if you'll, if you'll permit me for just a few minutes here, can we geek out just for a second on some biblical prophecy that I, bring, I think brings weight to this text? In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is given a a prophecy. He's given a vision of a 70-week period that will be a hard pressing for the people of Israel. It'll be a purifying time for the people of Israel that they would repent of their sins and they would turn unto their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he sees this vision of this 70-week period. Now, each week, here's where blow your mind a little bit, each week is seven years. So 77-year periods that are gonna start at a certain time. By the way, this is not Da Vinci Code stuff. This is not Bible code, not mixing up some numbers and trying to ta-da. This is just straight what was given to Daniel. It's historical. And he is told that this period for hard-pressing purifying of Israel that they would repent and turn into Messiah, would begin the moment a decree is issued that Israel could be released from captivity in Persia and go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. And you know what? We know exactly when that happened. Nehemiah chapter 2, the king Artaxerxes issues a decree that they could go back. Nehemiah goes back and builds the wall, Ezra goes back and builds the people, Zerubbabel, and remember Haggai go along and they're gonna rebuild the temple. And so they do, and we know when that happened. That was roughly around 444, 445 BC, when Artaxerxes reigned and issued that decree. It's history. And so right then, that prophetic clock starts ticking. And you can start, now do the math, 70 weeks, seven years each, it's 490 years. And you can start doing the math. And you know what's interesting? When you get to the 69th week, which is 483 years after that decree, you know when it takes you up to to the very day? It takes you right to the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, right before he would be crucified on that cross. And that time leading up there was a time for Israel to repent It was a time for John the Baptist, the second Elijah, to come along and say, now is the time. Make way. Make the path clear for the Lord, because he's coming. And Israel would not repent. Instead, Israel handed over their Messiah to be killed on a cross. And what is seen right there theologically is that in that 69th week, the clock stopped. And God, from that moment John chapter 10, I've got other sheep I've got to attend to. I'm going to go gather some Gentiles. And right now is saving people like you and me all across this world, as well as a specific remnant of Jews as well. He's gathering in this body. But there appears to be one final week of that prophecy that has gone unfulfilled, a final seven-year period that is still to come. And in Matthew 24, Jesus announces that is coming. There is a day coming in the future when there will be one final week of Daniel's prophecy, the 70th week, a final seven-year period in which Israel will be pressed unto repentance to turn to their Messiah in mass. And you see it in Revelation chapter 7 as well as in Revelation chapter 14, a seven-year tremendous time of painful tribulation that is given towards Israel to repent. And in that, in Revelation 7 as well as Revelation 14, you see a vision into that window where there is a mass repentance of Jews who come to faith. In fact, 144,000 Jews are sealed off, 12,000 from every tribe who are saved, redeemed, and used as witnesses on the earth in that day to the glory of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Does your Bible know what it's talking about? Oh, it knows what it's talking about. This shot was called Long Ago. And yet we are waiting to be fulfilled. And that's, by the way, when Peter, after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, Peter preaches his first sermon there in Jerusalem. And you know what he says to the Jews in Acts chapter three, verses 19 through 21? He says these words, repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that when you do that, That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ, the appointed one for you, who is Jesus. Now, Christ had already been sent when Peter's preaching this. He's talking about a second coming in this passage. And he tells the Jews, repent, that times of refreshing would come and God's going to send the Messiah to come back. He'll return this Messiah Jesus whom from heaven has to receive right now until the time for the restoring of all things comes about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter was anticipating a future day when Israel would repent and the Messiah would return and therefore all Israel would be saved. So what Paul does now in verse 28 is he summarizes. What does this mean for us today? And he's speaking to the Gentiles right now who are kind of getting cocky there at the end of chapter 11. He says, Listen, as regard to the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, that is not an endorsement of anti Semitism. This is a wrong interpretation where even Martin Luther went that he should have never gone. What this is speaking about, meaning in one sense, from the vantage point of the gospel, of the person and work of Jesus Christ, present-day Israelites are enemies of God, as is anyone who would reject Jesus Christ. James said the same thing in James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So from the standpoint of the gospel, of the work of Jesus Christ, anyone who rejects Jesus is an enemy of God. That's a fact. However, from another vantage point, from the vantage point of God's promise to save and redeem his elect who have yet to be saved, they are beloved by God, just like anyone else who is far from God and yet to be saved. As Jeremiah prophesied to his people, the Lord, in Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to him from far away and God said to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Even though you were unfaithful to me and still being unfaithful to me, that hasn't stopped me from being faithful to you because I love you and I want to see my people redeemed. Because in verse 29, We understand this to be true, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning nothing is gonna thwart God's plan. Once he has made a promise to save, he will see it through all the way to the end. Doesn't that make you feel good? Like we are so unfaithful, but God is faithful. He'll see it through. He'll finish what he started. And what seems to be so mysterious and so seemingly impossible for us to believe that God could save someone who's so far from him? Paul goes, nothing's impossible because if God's gonna save and redeem, nothing's gonna stop it. He's gonna save his elect. Case in point, by the way, you. It's what he says in verse 30 and 31. Exhibit A, Gentiles, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, were you rebellious to God? Rejecting God, rejecting Christ as Savior, thinking you're smarter than God, you don't need him, just as at one time you were disobedient, but now you've received mercy from God through their disobedience? Oh, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they could also receive mercy. But just as God showed mercy to you, he's gonna show mercy to them because he has a master plan in place to bring these two together as one in Jesus Christ. And nothing is going to stop it. Mercy. And in fact, in verse 32, Paul concludes here with one verse, one verse that not only summarizes this section, I will argue this one verse in 32 summarizes all of chapters one through 11 right here when he says, for God has consigned all. That word consigned is the same idea as hardened. It's the same idea as given over, like we've seen earlier in Romans. Everybody that God has hardened or given over has given them over to their disobedience. But he's done so, so that he may have mercy on all just as God has handed us over to our sin because of our rejection towards him, that hasn't stopped it. God is still in the business of showing mercy to a people who don't deserve it so he can redeem them as a people for himself. Four times, y'all, in the last three verses, you see the word mercy, four times. This is the theme right here of what God is up to in the world is showing his mercy. And in fact, when we get to Romans chapter 12, verse one, later this fall, when we get there, you're gonna see one word the apostle Paul uses. Listen to that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's what? Say it again, in view of God's what? Mercies. Mercies. One word summarizes everything that Paul has covered for 11 chapters. If you could summarize everything we've studied this entire year, one word, mercy. In view of God's mercy, of his redemptive salvation in your life to give you, to to, to pull off you what you deserved and again give you what you didn't deserve, you now take that salvation and offer your bodies up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true form, your true act of worship mercy, y'all. And I find it so ironic in a day when literally our entire culture is screaming as loud as we can, justice, 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 and rightly so in many, many spaces. But in a day and age where that is the mantra of the culture, we have a God who has been sitting on his throne for eternity shouting, mercy, mercy, mercy. Because if you want to know what justice is, it's Romans 1 through 3. To all who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, we have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve eternal death and damnation and separation from God. That would be justice. But we have a God who so loves you that he has poured out his mercy to ensure that Your trespasses and sins are not held against you, but they are fully satisfied in the death of Christ. And his righteousness through faith has been given to you so that you can be saved. I love how Pastor Tony Morita sums up this section of Romans. Here's the big idea. When the gospel has penetrated to the ends of the earth, that is the Gentile world, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the family of God through faith in Christ. Then in God's mysterious saving grace, he will lift the veil on his ancient people and multitudes of them will trust Jesus as their savior sometime around the return of Christ. God will have a people for himself from both Jews and Gentiles who have been saved by God's mercy alone. The great aim, and I would say the great aim of the book of Romans, the great aim of all that we've studied thus far, is that the nations will glorify God for his mercy. And so church, the question for us really twofold as we close out today. And then next week, by the way, we'll close out this section of Romans. We'll take a break for a little while. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's doxology because the only thing you can do after 11 chapters of just turning this diamond to seeing who God is and how he saves is you got to fall on your face and you got to worship. A God that can bring these two people together as one in Jesus Christ through his blood by no volition of our own, but sheer mercy of God. What can you do with the infinite wisdom of that kind of God other than fall on your face and worship him? And we will do that. We'll see that next week. I'd say in the meantime, two questions to be posed here is, one, have you received God's mercy? God's mercy has been made available to you, but you will never see your need for it unless you understand how you have rejected God. You will understand the depth of sin in your own life. And only until you get downwind of yourself and downwind of the holiness of God will you see how woefully short we have fallen. And then you'll turn to Jesus for the salvation that he freely offers you through his blood. But it's mercy that has come for you. It's mercy that you need. You are far worse a sinner than you think you are but he is far greater a savior than you can possibly fathom him to be. He's given you his mercy. Oh, that you would turn to faith in Jesus. You are not promised tomorrow. There is a day fixed when the lights shut off in your life and you breathe your last, there will not be a second shot at mercy. This life is the mercy he's given us to turn to Jesus now while salvation is at hand. Give your life to Jesus. Put your trust in the person and work of Jesus. Transfer your trust to him and rest in his mercy. Rest in the salvation that washes over you and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. And then the sending of the Holy Spirit. Today is Pentecost Sunday, by the way. It's where we celebrate 50 days after Jesus' ascension when the Holy Spirit invaded that upper room and indwelled those saints and the gift for us today through the work of Christ. And you get the promise of the Holy Spirit filling you, making you his new home, changing your life from the inside out, changing your affections from the inside out, conforming you day by day through his power at work in your life as you yield to him and his word, making you more like Jesus so that by the end of this life, you look more like Jesus than when this whole thing began. That's his mercy to you. For those who have put their trust in the work of Christ and you have received the mercy of his salvation. I hope you can see the bigger plan that's at work here. The end game is just not you, it's not me, it's not just our salvation. It is a myriad of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth being brought together as one humanity. His plan to redeem a people so diverse, not contained to just one people group, or one particular region of the earth to one group that's smart enough to figure it out. No, his plan is a worldwide diversity of reach with his mercy. And if this is the heart of God, then it should be our heart as well to go and to share the gospel to the nations. Let's not be self-righteous, in our own estimation, and our own salvation, let's not be so quick to stand in judgment of even those that we would perceive as our enemies right now, because one day they might be very well be advocates along with us of the gospel of Jesus. And so let's go out. I don't know about y'all, I don't wanna be at a Northway that just exists to kind of hoard the blessings of God to ourselves and just go insular. I wanna be a part of a North way, redeemed by the blood of Christ that understands the mercy that's come our way and has now been channeled, given to us, been given us as agents of God's mercy to go out and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Starting right here in Dallas, to our lost friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members, and then jumping on planes, hitting buses, and let's get out there and let's go into the parts of the world where the gospel has not reached yet so we can see God's elect respond to the mercy that has been given us, that has been offered to them. Amen? That's what we wanna be about, y'all. And so to that end, man, may that be the future of Northway Church. May that be our reality For the glory of God unto the nations, as the waters cover the sea, so might, too, the glory of God cover the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here in the book of Romans. Thank you for the promise that we have been given of this salvation that wasn't just reserved for one particular group. But God, that through the mystery of your plan from eternity past included both Jew and Gentile from every tongue, tribe, and nation across the earth throughout history to receive your mercy and be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Oh God, would you make that the reality of our day? Let us not settle for anything less. Let us go and be heralds of this gospel. We pray for our Jewish friends. God, that that hardening would be melted just like it was with us. They would turn in faith to Jesus and be saved. Keep us fresh on that mission, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.